Mastermind Agent is proud to present Success Calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Todd Smith with Keller Williams in Goodyear, Arizona. Last year, he, his wife Shannon Cunningham, and team closed 216 transactions with a total sales volume of $50 million and earned $1.7 million in GCI. His average sales price was $235,000, of which 48% were buyers and 52% were sellers. They also manage 160 rental units. Todd has a 15-member team, one lead listing specialist, one listing partner, four buyer specialists, two showing assistants, two inside sales associates, one transaction manager, one marketing manager, one property manager, one field manager, and one team leader. Todd is the team leader of AZ Performance Realty. He's been an agent for 11 years and works the Metro Phoenix market. In this call, Todd talks about barely graduating from high school and working as a garbage man for six years, joining a friend's team and selling five homes his first week, how to leverage new construction when you're a resale agent, why geographic farming accounts for 67% of his business, 168 closings last year, how they picked their first farm and what they did to expand it, receiving a 22 to 1 ROI in the farm, For every $1 invested, $22 came back. Why they use an 8x8 program to start a new farm and get name recognition fast. What they mail into the farm and how often. How to enhance your farm results and reputation with open houses. Why the team was growing at 20-30% to per year, then stalled, and how they're growing again. The maximum number of listings a single agent can list each month and service properly. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's free referralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Todd. Hey, thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Hey, Todd. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Sure, you got it. I think I have a um, kind of a, a pretty interesting, I guess, trajectory. If I go back to, um, to 18 years old, I had barely graduated high school, which I'm not necessarily proud of. It literally came down to one last, I had to get an A on my very last English test in order to graduate. <laughs> and at the time, um, I know, very proud of that. <laughs> so I just, I just struggled in school and it wasn't because I couldn't do it. It was because I was bored. And I remember looking back now, I was getting pulled out of class a lot to take these IQ tests and they were recommending that I take some accelerated courses. And I think that I was just so bored with it that um, I didn't understand, I guess, how important it was. And so I went to college because that's what every kid or my class had done. And I just, I continued that same trajectory. I got poor grades, 
And my dad came, came to me and he said, listen, I'll give you one more shot at this thing. But if you don't make it the next semester, then we're not going to be able to pay for your schooling. And I just had to look at myself and be honest. And I just knew that the next semester would be exactly how that first semester was. And so for the next six years, I worked as a garbage man. And back in Cleveland, Ohio, it's the back of the truck garbage man, right? And so that was my full-time job, making anywhere from $4 an hour to $9. The thing with that is that it felt completely normal because my college buddies would come home during the summer and we would all do it together. They'd go away and come back and we'd do it again. And the other thing is that my best friend was doing it with me full-time also. And then you got to keep in mind that after work, we would go back to our parents' houses, which were these nice houses. So it didn't feel strange by any means. Until one day, that best friend came into work, and he says, uh, hey, man, Friday's my last day. And I thought, what? And he said, yeah, I got an uh, internship with a window company. And at that moment, and I think I was maybe 21 or 22, the whole world had turned upside down. And so when he left, it did feel like I wasn't going anywhere in my life, per se. And so I went back to school while I was still working 40 hours a week as a garbage man. And at that moment, education meant something completely different to me. And when I say that, I mean that I was taking courses intentional, studying business, and at that point, getting straight A's, which I had never done since, I don't know, fifth grade or something. And uh, so through that, I felt like my path was very untraditional because where I grew up in Cleveland, you know, you graduated high school. If you're one of the lucky few, you graduated college, you got a job with a traditional company. And you stuck it out for 30 years, you retired, and, and hopefully your house was paid off, right? And so, you know, my world was turned upside down. And so I ended up, I got my associates, and then I went from a community college to um, a four-year and working in business management. I started interviewing for other positions. And I ended up with this company called MBNA, which at the time was the world's largest credit card issuer. And they had, I think it was 23,000 employees. And they required that you had a four-year college degree in order to, um, apply for a position there. Not only did I have a non-traditional path, I didn't have the four-year degree yet. And so I interviewed anyway, and I wanted that job so bad, and I got it. When I got it, I felt like I had to prove myself because I didn't feel like I was supposed to have it because all the other guys and gals had four-year degrees, and I didn't yet. So I worked countless hours. I gave more effort and energy than anyone else did. And within two years in this company, I was the youngest officer. So the officers are the top 20% of this 23,000 employee company. And so I was really proud of that because I felt like I had kind of broken out of that non-traditional path, if you will. And so two years after that, they've got me, um, and by the way, I absolutely love the company. I love the positions that I had held, but they had me in front of um, a room of about 500 to 700 people. They bring me on stage and they, they give me the manager of the year award at that time. And I honestly went completely blank. I cannot remember what they said. The only thing I could think of is that in front of this room, you're telling me that I'm the very best and I'm the lowest paid. And so (laughs) that was my big revelation. And the reason that's so important is that a friend of mine from years back who, who had lived in Cleveland also had since gone to school in Colorado, became an engineer in California, wasn't satisfied with his income, moved to Arizona and started uh, his real estate team. And so he was constantly recruiting me for two years telling me about his monthly income and his annual income that were numbers that I had never heard before because it just wasn't the conversation we were having in in Cleveland. And so I created every limitation in my head and every excuse of how that can't be possible, why it can't happen to me, 
how he just got lucky. And then finally, after that, you know, that manager of the year award revelation, I just told you, I, I thought, that's it. I'm not going to let anyone determine my destiny any longer. And I'm going to give that a try. So in January of 2006 is when I made the move from Cleveland to Arizona specifically to pursue the real estate opportunity. Wow. You had to be pretty scared to give up that cushy corporate job and move across the country and take a flyer on real estate. <laughs> I was scared and I, and I was driven. And, uh, you know, everyone that I had shared, you know, this, this, I guess, experiment or opportunity with was trying to hold me back. And I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it very well now is that when you're taking these leaps to get out of your comfort zone and pursue something bigger, it makes the folks that are very comfortable, uncomfortable. And so rather than follow you or follow their dreams and try to think bigger, it's almost like the natural tendency is to try to hold you closer to them. And so everyone in my you know circle of friends at the time, because I was much younger, but in my sphere was trying to hold me back. And so, yes, I had tremendous amounts of self-doubt. However, what was interesting is um, I had a tremendous mind shift at that time is that I literally had $4,000 to my name when I had moved. And I had already put a contract on a house, which was new construction that was closing in March of 2006. And so with that house, my car payment, my other bills, I had a a $2,000 a month obligation. So in my mind, when I got into real estate, I literally had two months to figure out how to make it work. (laughs) That's (laughs) some motivation, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And so a couple of things that came out of that is 11 years later, I don't look at money the same way I did in 2006. I look at money as stuff, right? Like maybe nice jeans or nice jacket or a nice car, things like that. But in that moment, when I had $4,000 and $2,000 a month obligation, money turned into time. And so my goal was to get myself as much time as possible. And that was interesting because when I finally got my license on June 30th, I already knew the team that I was going to join. And I sold, um, I know I'm a realtor. I know I'm supposed to sell houses. And so I went and sold five in my first week. And the big takeaway <laughs> from that is that until the second week, when people said, you know, how did you sell five houses in one week? You know, in my mind, naive, thank God, is, well, that's what we do. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I, I started almost second guessing it because everybody else was. And that was kind of a big takeaway for me also is that it um, doesn't necessarily, there's no, I call them ceilings of achievement. But there's, you know, just because the folks that you're surrounded by are hitting their six-figure ceiling or whatever they, they picture to be success is that, um, you know, there actually isn't a ceiling. And so we can't be limited by their uh, production, if that makes sense. When you went down to Arizona, you said you joined a team. Was that your friend's team? It was my friend's team. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, it's one of the greatest things that I could have asked for only because I've never known anything in my real estate career other than a team environment. And so when I say that, I've only known what it is to have administrative support and that, you know, that ability to leverage that administrative support so that, you know, we can be out as real estate agents being as productive as possible while never bogged down with, you know, the paperwork side of, of uh, the transaction that most agents find themselves kind of in, um, just call it peaks and valleys of commissions, right? Where we were able to go out because I had joined a team and just constantly be producing. And so, yes, we were only on that team for, I say we, because I, I met my now wife and business partner on that team for, gosh, maybe a year and a half before we started ours. But it was a great place to kind of 
learn what works and what doesn't in that environment. What a great friend. Everybody needs a friend like you had who uh, brought you into the business and had <laughs> such a great start. That's wonderful. And tell us about that first year. You said the first week you sold five homes, but then the reality hit. The other Everybody was saying that's crazy and that's too big and that's too much. What happened the rest of that year? What did you do for that first full year? Well, I felt like kind of like the folks back home in Cleveland, those same agents that I didn't know from Adam that were saying, you know, how did you sell five? I was going to show them that it was, it was sustainable. And so it certainly wasn't five a week, but it was five a month. And what I had done is keep in mind, I didn't know anything about real estate. I didn't even know how to write a, a contract. But what was interesting in, in Arizona at the time, this is, you know, 05, 06, there was a tremendous amount of new construction. And we all know what happened in 2008, but being naive, we didn't see that coming. So what I was doing is not necessarily partnering with the new construction sales offices, but getting to know their, their sales folks really, really well, and then understanding what products they were putting out. And then at the end of their you know, build-outs, they were letting their remaining homes go as specs, well below what they were selling off you know, prior. And so what I would do is take those discounts and I would advertise them as if they were a discount that I was able to offer through my representation. And so the first probably 20 some odd homes I sold were spec homes through uh, builders. And so the nice thing about that is that the builders write your contract, right? I had the administrative support that would get the contract and put them in the broker file. So I didn't have to do that. The builders did the final walkthrough. So I didn't have to do that. And so basically I was just prospecting on behalf of, of the builders. And then the other piece that was um, that helped me when I didn't have much of a network in Arizona is that I would take, because I was on a team, I had access to resale listings also. And so I would take those listings and treat those as a client. And so I would try to get as much exposure to those listings and put whatever twist on it, whether it might be a good investment opportunity or highly upgraded or you know what, who, try to attract different potential buyers to those properties. And that's how I found the other pool of buyers. So it, it worked out quite well. The first year, well, you think you put under maybe 50, 60 transactions? Yeah, the first 12 months, it would be close to about 40 transactions. Well, let's do this. Let's fast forward to today. So how long have you been in the real estate business? 11 years. 11 years. That's amazing. And you mentioned that you went out and put out together your own team. So last year, how many homes did you sell and what was the sales volume? So last year, we sold 216 transactions and our average sales price is right around 230000 in our market. And so that represented about $50 million in total sales volume. And do you know what the GCI was on that? It was just under $1.7 million for our team. How about this year, year to date? Can you tell me, we're sitting here at the beginning of December. How many homes have you sold this year and what's the sales volume? So year to date, we've sold 186 homes and this total sales volume is $45 million. We're pacing just flat, if not a little bit behind last year. We'll end right at about $49, $50 million again this year. That's pretty exciting. I think that anyone listening would be really happy with 200 closings a year. But when you and I talked before the call and we got some information going, you mentioned that you have been growing at a 20 to 30% clip and this is a flat year. So you kind of feel like it's a down year. Could you tell us what you've learned from that? <laughs> Absolutely. It is a down year. And that's why I wanted to share that piece with you and your audience. So one of the things that we have done is, and I think we're going to talk about it, 
is we've built our business on top of a geographic farm. And every year we've, we've grown that farm. And Shannon Cunningham, my wife, is our lead listing specialist. And so for every year, we've, we've been building an administrative army around her to give her the ability to take more and more listing appointments, which ultimately meant more and more listings, right? And then we leverage the listings with open houses to find potential buyers. And we have a, a buyer's team of, of six buyer's agents. And so every year, that model worked very, very well. What I may have failed as, a, as kind of the CEO of this company is I didn't recognize the writing on the wall, which is we maxed her out. And so at one point, it doesn't matter how much administrative uh, support that we had, is that she just couldn't take on more listing appointments because she didn't have any more time in the day. And so what we were really slow to do was to leverage a listing partner. And so we have since brought up an additional listing agent to complement the activities that Shannon has provided and the production that Shannon has provided in an effort to kind of, I guess, break through the next level. So next year, and maybe we'll do this again, our goal is um, 300 transactions and $67 million in sales volume. Okay, so that's really excellent. You discovered that there was a bottleneck. You couldn't get more listings in, and so now you're going to bring in a listing partner to help open that up a little bit, open up that conduit. And how recently have you brought this listing partner up and, and have you learned anything about training a listing partner? <laughs> sure. Um, so her first day was August 14th and she's someone that's been with our, our company for four years. And when I mentioned the administrative army, so she would have been considered Gannon's listing partner. So what she would do is handle everything from after the listing agreement. And so that would be, you know, ordering the photos and the staging and putting the property on the MLS and all the marketing that goes into it. And then managing just the, um, you know, the weekly updates with the seller. Been in that capacity, whether with us or with other top agents for about 11 years. And so she seems to be a wonderful fit because to know her is to like her. And that's kind of her, her superpower. Where we're seeing kind of the learning curve is She's kind of the master of the post-listening agreement to close, where what we're finding is very new for her, and she's doing a great job getting through this, is really how do you prospect for new business and how do you provide value that's different than the other. In our market, we have 52,000 licensed agents. How do you create value that's bigger and better than those other 52,000 agents? And so we're navigating through there in addition to trying to, to identify, you know, what is her number one lead lever going to be? Where is she going to lead generate the most successfully? And so it's been an interesting three months, but, but she's, she's done quite well. She's been on over 20 listing appointments and she's converting well. And we, we think it'll be great for 2018. Well, that is really interesting. And I want to play devil's advocate just for a second. Are you familiar with the DISC, the DISC, the DISC profile test? Sure, I am. It sounds like you had a listing manager and now you're turning her into a listing partner and they seem like different skill sets to me where your listing manager would probably be a, a C or an SC and your listing partner, you'd want more D, more DI. Do you know what the DISC personality profile is for this person that you're moving into this listing partner position? I do. It's more of an IS and you're right. It, it doesn't necessarily fit the box. And so we've had to be really purposeful and intentional in understanding, you know, I, I love that this profile, however, I also know it doesn't necessarily define us. We do understand 
where we have to kind of sharpen our skills, if that makes sense. And so that's one of the things that, that we've been working on is kind of how to overcome, I guess, some of the reservations that maybe a D might just go right at it, where she's kind of hesitant and overthinking how she's going to get to the door. And, but you're, you're right, she doesn't necessarily fit. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. It's just the way we've, we're kind of approaching it. And so where we're going with this conversation and certainly with our business is that we're not stopping at just one listing partner. We're really looking to grow the listing team to complement the buyer's team. I mentioned that we have six buyer specialists. We want to do something similar to that on the, the listing side of the business, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, let me ask this since we kind of I opened the box. The gal that you're moving into this listing partner position, is she happy? Is she being productive? She is, yeah, she's very happy, very productive. For fear she listens to this call, she kind of takes the last listing appointment and that, that sets her energy level. So if it went really well, she's on cloud nine and ready to go and wants the next 10 listing appointments. If it doesn't go well, she takes it real personal and it kind of takes her through the rest of the week. And so that is one of the things that we're really trying to focus on is who we give the power to and you know where our energy levels come from, things like that. So you did open the box and it's it's all great things to consider. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing with us because these are the day-to-day issues that we work through and try to make the best fit and make everybody happy. So so thank you for going there. You mentioned that Shannon uh, uh, kind of hit a wall with how many listings she could take on her own. How many listings was that? We can, we can manage a, a listing inventory of about 30 at any given time. She, and while we were... P- going through the trajectory of getting to 15 at any given time, 20 at any given time, 30 at any given time, our goal was to get to 50. And then we just sat at 30 and we really had to take a look at that. And so what we found is as we're looking at our calendar, it just wasn't going to be possible to take on 20 more only because of the, the you know, the opportunity to leverage time. We had, we had already leveraged it all. How many listings has Shannon been averaging per month? Do you know? Gary Keller wrote the MREA book, A Millionaire Real Estate Agent. I think it was either 02 or 04. I don't have it in front of me. And Mike Mendoza is an agent in our, in our market, actually um, the East Valley. And we had listened, Shannon and I had listened to this book on tape as we were driving to California. And Mike had said that he will get two to three listing appointments per day. And this goes back seven or eight years. And Shannon and I, between the two of us, we're not getting two or three listing appointments per day. And so we knew that now our new goal is to get to two to three listing appointments a day. And so it probably took about 18 months where not only were we getting two to three a day, we were getting four or five a day. And then we got had an opportunity to see Mike in our, in our market center. And he was talking about branding and farming. And so he wraps up and Shannon walks up to him and said, uh, you know, you really changed my mindset when you said two to three listing appointments per day. And he goes, Shannon, I said, I said two to three listing appointments a week. <laughs> right so it's the four minute mile <laughs> and so um but to answer your question our our the average amount of listings we would take on a monthly basis was about 16 i'm sorry how many 16 16 mm-hmm. uh very good very good thank you so much what i'd like to do now if it's okay with you is switch over and talk about your geographic farm i'm pretty excited to talk about this you mentioned it's the base of your business what percentage of your business last year came from geographic farming? 67% of our business will come from geographical farming, and that's been proven pretty much every year since we started the farm in 2012. 
Wow, that's about two-thirds of your business. Do you know how many transactions that was approximately last year? Last year, it represented about 168 of our total transactions. And what's interesting about the farm is that, and we can talk about this, it started with 800 homes. And we have a real strategic way of how we initiate our farm. And then I can tell you how we grew it. But what's great about the farm, and when I mentioned foundation, is that the rest of the lead generating that we do is, we call it enhancing, is enhancing that farm. And so we used to do as many as 16 open houses a week. We've tailored that back some, and I can explain why later. But our open houses are all within that farm. And so where we're already recognized, now they're seeing you know, those open house signs and coming in and kind of with, I guess, the understanding of who, who they're going to be meeting with. And so everything that we do is complementing the marketing that we're already doing on the farm, if that makes sense. So in addition to that 67% of our business coming from the farm, well, then we have the transactions that are coming from the open houses. Then we have the transactions that are coming from the sign calls. And um, we do some community events now, too. And so it's all kind of layered into that machine. Well, walk us through that process. Why did you decide to start farming? How did you pick the initial 800 homes? How did you expand? Walk us through that timeline. Yeah, sure. So this goes back to 2011, 2012. And you think about what the market was from 2008 to 2011. It was, you know, the Great Recession. And so in our market, which is the West Valley of Phoenix, which are cities like uh, Goodyear, Surprise, Avondale, Litchfield Park, we saw prices literally drop by 65%. So homes that were selling up in the 300 range, you could get for 65000 sometime in that recession. And so it's quite devastating. However, my, my background, as I mentioned earlier, was a little more in, in numbers, finance. And so I saw it as an opportunity for me to work with investors who could buy homes for $50 a square foot versus the 100 and something that they were going for prior. And so that got me some great connections in Canada that I still have, which would allow me to get on stages at investment seminars and uh, you know, basically present Arizona as a great opportunity to invest in real estate. And that snowballed itself into writing articles for Canadian publications, to being on the cover of Canadian magazines and all of these exciting things. And so we were surviving that way. And then kind of through 2011, where the market bottom in 2012 when the market was starting to correct itself, we weren't seeing the same investment opportunities. Now, hindsight being 2020, they were the same investment opportunities, but they didn't look the same as they had for the past two years. And so Shannon and I looked around and we thought, oh my God, as much success as we're having in Canada and you know, kind of well-known in that market as the Arizona concept, nobody knows who we are here. And so that's when we took a real look at how are we going to uh, lead generate. And we decided that a farm would probably be the best way to reach out to the community. And so to your point, how did we decide to start is uh, we went for kind of just the most desirable neighborhood in the city of Surprise, which is where we lived at the time. And that community had a turnover rate of just over 10%. Today, it's about 7%. But all that means is that there's 800 homes in that community is that 10% of them would sell in a 12-month basis, so 80 homes would sell. And so we thought that that would be a great place to start. And so we had taken a farming class with actually the owner of our, our market center, and that was his business for years. And so he taught us the way to roll out, we call it an eight by eight, which was taking these 800 homes and strategically hitting them with 
some sort of marketing piece week one and then week two a different piece week three a different piece week four a different piece and then we would just repeat that so five six seven eight and then after we hit that eighth week then we hit them with a marketing piece that's very consistent in far as how this marketing piece looks every three weeks in a perpetuity if that makes sense and so you know it wasn't a quick payoff by any means but we knew when we started that we wouldn't necessarily stop and it probably took us maybe six months to get a rental lead and replace that renter. And I think that was $300 that we got for commission. And then it took about 12 months in order for us to get our first listing appointment. And then once we took that first listing, the thing blew itself up. And so if I go back and look at the last five or six years in that farm, for every dollar we've put in, we've gotten $22 out. So it's been a pretty good ROI. (laughs) Not bad at all. Took a little bit of a while to plant those seeds and get them germinating, but after a year it started to kick in, and and now twenty two to one, that's pretty good. It worked out well, and we knew, you know, with eight hundred homes, that's not necessarily a large farm. We were ready to commit the capital in order to wait for the return, and so we were kind of playing red light green light. We weren't going to expand the farm until we've gotten all of our money back, and it was relatively inexpensive. I guess inexpensive is relative, anyways. But I think first eight weeks, weeks cost us about uh, $1,600. And then um, once we got to every three weeks, it wasn't painfully expensive. But we weren't going to expand until we got our money back. And as soon as we did, we just added another 800 homes in a neighboring community. And then we did the exact same eight-week rollout. And that one caught on much, much quicker. And then over the years, we've gone to where we would just add two more communities, two more communities. And then we last year, we started, I think, another 8,000 houses the first quarter of last year. And then that's kind of where we've gotten to the 32,500. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Your farm today is 32,500 homes? It is, yes. It's a pretty big farm. And was that about 40 times bigger than where you started? That's, that's a big increase. That's pretty cool. And so tell us about the farm today. Did you just move from one neighborhood to the next so that they're all kind of grouped together? Are they contiguous or are they spread across the city? That's a great question. So they're somewhat contiguous in that in the West Valley of Phoenix, which is all suburbs, most of it's built from 1999 on and the lion's share of that built from 2006 on. There are these one mile by one mile blocks and they're each a, a specific community. Like for instance, that first one I told you about, that community was called Royal Ranch. And so when we're delivering our marketing pieces, it'll be specific to Royal Ranch. And so the piece that we get the most call to action off of is on the back of this flyer, we have the most recent home sales in Royal Ranch. So it might say November, December, Royal Ranch home sales. And then we'll have the address, the square footage, the number of beds, baths, whether or not there was a pool and the price. And so, you know, the consumer who's receiving this gets some fairly real-time information on what's going on in, in their neighborhood. So We probably have maybe 12 or 13 communities in the city of Surprise. There's 
gosh, in Goodyear, one community, but it's 4,000 houses. Litchfield Park, probably another 4,000 houses, and the same in Avondale. So we're in four cities, but we really focus on each neighborhood, if that makes sense. It does. So you have basically a sub-market or a sub-farm. You've got a collection of farms. You're not sending out one piece to everybody that's generic. You're getting very specific. You're being the specialist in that neighborhood. Exactly. We're giving them information specific to their neighborhood. Wow, that's great. So how many, uh, you kind of start to go through that sound like maybe 15 or 20 different sub-markets that you're working? Does that sound about right? That's a fair number. It might be a little more than that. I don't have it exact. That sounds about right. Okay. So when you're putting together your marketing piece every three weeks, you're making it unique to that market. In fact, why don't we do that? Why don't you tell us more about what you're doing to promote in the neighborhoods? You said you have this one piece that's talking about the home sales in that neighborhood. I assume you're putting a call to action in there to find out what their value of their home is. Is that true? That's it. That's the call to action. And it hasn't changed since 2012. So we have two main pieces. So I mentioned when we roll out the 8 by 8 there's four specific pieces, and then we repeat those four. After that, there's two. And so it alternates. There's a newsletter, and then it's a postcard. And so what we use the postcard for is to make some sort of announcement. And the announcement is just as simple as a just listed or a just sold. And so nothing changes on the postcard on the front except for a picture of a house and address and if it's just listed or just sold. And if it just sold, we try to highlight something like above appraised value or in two days or just some sort of achievement, if that makes sense. On the back of the card, it's always the exact same. It has that call to action that you just mentioned. And then so we get that on, let's call it week one. And three weeks later is the newsletter, which is nothing more than a flyer. The front of the flyer, it never changes. And it has our tagline on it. Our tagline is we sell a home every 45 hours. And I joke that I'm not going to change that until it's every 24 hours. But so it's, we sell a home every 45 hours. And then some, some other verbiage like a free, no obligation listing appointment type stuff. Uh, then on the back, that's where it does change, the top half of that flyer. And so all the changes um, each drop is that is, you know, the name of the community, like you were saying, is the date range of the closed home sales and then just the most recent sales. And we just pull that off of the MLS in an Excel format. We send it off to our graphic designer and, and they do all the work. And so all we have to do is just give them the data. The rest of the design and stuff happens with the printer. So the first postcard that you send out in the three-week cycle, is that generic? Is that going out to everybody? The same postcard goes out to the entire farm? Yes and no. 90% of the time, it is specific to a close or just listed in their neighborhood. We do have one generic card we can hit with everyone, and all that one says is that we sell a home every 45 hours. But we try to be as specific as possible with those communities. And then the newsletter is unique on the back section. You were mentioning that top part where it targets that neighborhood. It mentions that neighborhood in the name, in the title. You're exactly right. So you have a template that you're using that's generic to everybody. It's the same template, but then you get in that back panel, it's very specific, showing the sales in that neighborhood and showing that you're the expert in that neighborhood. You also mentioned this newsletter is a flyer. So is it just one piece of paper? One piece of paper is 14 by nine. So in Arizona, we've got, we call them cluster box mailboxes. This is the one that's so big that they have to wrestle it out. And so that's somewhat <laughs> intentional. 
so that uh, you know we get a little more attention when they're falling out. But yeah, one sheet, two sided, fourteen by nine. Now, is that high gloss? Is it uh, just like a regular piece of uh, copy paper? What does it look like? The quality of the paper and the is it color or black and white? Great question. It's gloss. I'm not sure it would be considered high gloss. It is a hard stock, you know, flyer. It's I would consider it to be a high quality piece. It costs us 18 cents to print it. Wow. Okay. 18 cents to print. And then how much does it cost to deliver? Uh, we do it through every door direct mail with the post office. And I think that's now 17.7 cents. Okay. So you got about 35 cents a piece to get it out. Plus you have some labor. Is somebody else putting these together and sending them out? Or are you doing that internally? We do it internally. We have a marketing manager in our office that manages the entire process, so I'm completely hands-off from it. And then we also offer property management services, and with that, we have a field manager that does a lot of our running, and so he'll be the one to bundle them and take them to the post office. So we do it internally. Just on a quick sidetrack, how many properties do you have under management? We do single-family residence management. We've got about 160. Oh, that's great. Thank you. By the way, is that for some of the Canadians? Is that how that started up? <laughs> That's exactly how it started out. We would refer that business out. And, I, you know, hindsight being 2020, that was a big mistake for two reasons. The first is that we weren't able to find a good property manager. And so, you know, as real estate agents, when we refer folks to our network, that's an extension of us. And so it wasn't looking good as far as us trying to be that one-stop shop. So about eight years ago, we started offering that service um, without any consideration of profit, just to be the one-stop shop. So it grew from somewhere between five and 22 properties, then to 160 without us really promoting it. What it's become is the best way to keep in contact with our investors, because every single month we're providing them with a financial report for their property, which is as simple as you know the, the revenue in, the expenses out, and then how much we disperse to their checking accounts. But Yes, uh, it's absolutely been for our Canadian clients. And then what kind of happened through our market here locally is that a lot of folks have been underwater for a very long time. And so as we're taking these listing appointments and folks do have maybe a, a need to relocate or an interest in buying a house, but they're underwater, we've been able to offer property management as an alternative to selling. And so with that, it's positioned us well in the market for future business, but it also has kind of given more of a solution-based appointment so that they just know that they have options other than selling. Let's go back into farming. You mentioned that you're once you get the farm going, you're sending out two pieces of postcard newsletter. The newsletter is 14 by 9, full glossy. It sounds to me like it's a gigantic postcard. Does that sound right? It's a gigantic postcard. I wanted to call it a poster when we were first designing it. Um, and, you know, a lot of that has to be RESPA compliant because we do partner with one of our preferred title agencies on that. And so we had to put it in order to stay compliant. They have to have their portion. And so when we were doing the design, we just thought, go bigger, go bigger, go bigger. And finally, we found it 14 by 9. We were able to get all of our content on there um, without it becoming confusing. So, yeah. And then our normal postcard, we print on our own. And that's I think that's 9 by 7. 9 by 7. And you said you're printing that on your own? Well, when I say that, we're absorbing the cost 100% on our own. Oh, I got you. Okay, so you're covering the full cost. Now, is the postcard, this 9x7, is it also a full gloss, thick paper? It is, yeah. 
And is that also going out by Every Door Direct? It sure is. So it's probably got similar cost structure to the newsletter, maybe a little bit cheaper on the printing. Yeah, I think it's 13 cents, but very similar. Same freight or postage, very similar. Let's back up. You said when you open up a new area and you start into the farm, you do an eight by eight. You go out there eight times in eight weeks, do the four postcards, and then you double it back twice. What is in that initial set of postcards, those first four postcards? How are you introducing yourself to the area? Okay, yeah, I'll explain that. I'll explain where it came from also. There was a, um, a study done in a community in California where they surveyed the neighborhood and they asked, if you were to list your house, who would you list it with? And no one had market share. And so they took this concept of this 8x8 eight eight and they, they created a fictitious agent, rolled out this 8x8, eight eight, and they went back and surveyed the exact same community, and their fictitious agent had 40% market share in just those eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, and so, so here's what the four deliveries look like. The very first one is that postcard that we've already talked about, that nine by six or nine by seven. The second one is that flyer that we were talking about that goes with, with the comparable sales in the community. The third one is a, an item that we're giving them something, but without the conversation of real estate. For us, this is a door hanger. And on one side, it it simply has Shannon's business card, just the image of her business card. On the other side, it has one of Shannon's recipes. And so I can remember one of them, Shannon's stuffed mushrooms. And so it's just just a door hanger with a recipe card on one side and Shannon's business card on the other side. And then the last piece, we call it a keeper piece. It's something we want them to hold on to. And so for us, this is a a 25-page pad, right? And so on the top of the pad, it says to do and with a box right next to it to check, call Shannon about our house. And then on the bottom of it, it has our contact information. But 80% of this pad is white. The pages are white, if that makes sense. And so, you know, the idea, like I said, is for them to keep that piece. And then we simply repeat that. So we do, you know, week one through four and then five through eight. And after week eight, the third week, we start that postcard flyer alternation. Once you get the farm going, you mentioned you're rolling out pieces uh, every three weeks. It's postcard and the newsletter. Do you ever go back out and send another notepad? If something gets slow, right, if we've gone a couple of months without any calls to action or any new listings, we will go back and, and relaunch an 8 by 8 We haven't had to do it very often, but uh, it's something that we're constantly looking at because that marketing manager that I told you about, she's constantly tracking what the expenses are going out. And then as we're closing any transactions that came from those farms by community, she's entering uh, gross commission amount. And so we're constantly tracking our return on investment on each community. Do you send out any other pieces of direct mail into your geographic farm other than what we've talked about so far? No, we keep it as consistent as possible and as simple as possible. Now, you also mentioned that, I'm trying to remember what you called it. Did you call it enhancing your farm, enhancing the farm with mm-hmm. open houses? Sound like you did some mass open houses, but you then pulled back on that we did, and I'll explain that. We started with two open houses every single week inside of that farm, and there's a concept that you've probably heard of with other agents called mega open houses. And so what was mega about these open houses, we'd have 500 invitations delivered to the door you know, in a radius around the open house, and then we would set up about 50 open house signs to guide traffic into these houses. And then we'd advertise on the internet, you know, Zillow, Trulia, the MLS, um, Realtor.com. 
And that would create a lot of buzz and it would bring a lot of people through. And we, we did that model from two open houses and then we ratcheted it up all the way to 10 open houses a week. And uh, we had our field manager setting those open houses up. And so we had a, we still have it. We have our branded vehicle that, uh, you know, says everything that we sell home every 45 hours and our logo and our contact information, driving around their communities in the morning, setting these open houses up. And so what we had was two a day, Wednesday through Saturday. And the opportunity was incredible. One of the things I've really been focusing on as a, as a team leader is really trying to understand, is it effort or obligation, right? Is it the effort for the opportunity or is it the obligation to have these open houses staffed once we got into the 10? So we're still very, very big on open houses. We just aren't doing the 10. And the, the reason why is what I had watched when we first started these four or five years ago was an excitement for the team to go and host this event and the excitement of the potential business that could come in, and the excitement of the community, the, the neighbors who hadn't seen anything rolled out that big, to fast forward four years when there's 10 of them, and we might be short-staffed, and now it's agents just trying to cover for other agents. And it became an obligation, if that makes sense, instead of, um, instead of the effort for opportunity. And so we still do three to five a week in that exact same capacity, but we've put more onus on the agents to plan their calendar around these, to almost become event planners, to strategically figure out how they're going to get their goal, which is the number of people that are going to come to these open houses, and the number of people that come to these open houses, how many are going to get pre-qualified, and then how many of them are prospects to work with today, and then how are we going to work through them once they're in our database. And so we just took a step back for, for those very reasons, if that makes sense to you. It does. It does. You kind of oversaturated the market with too many open houses and you weren't getting the same return. And so people on your team start to lose interest in doing them because they weren't seeing the results that they wanted. There was just too many open houses going on. Exactly. They weren't events for my team specifically. The community was still responding fine, but my team specifically felt it was an obligation to have them covered as opposed to an opportunity to see how many folks we could get to them. And so to your point, it, it could have been saturated. I'm not sure from the market's perspective, but certainly from our team's ability to cover all 10. And then, you know, when we first rolled this out four or five years ago, like you said, there's a book called The Purple Cow, and um, it's a marketing book. And there's a gentleman in the first chapter that's going through the pastures of Europe, and he's seen these beautiful, beautiful cows and these beautiful rolling green acres, and he just he's in awe. An hour later, it's just cows and grass. And that's kind of what these open houses have become, is everyone was now doing them. The public wasn't impressed or necessarily noticing them any longer. And so there, there was that shift. You're right. Sometimes. Go ahead. Uh, sometimes you feel like, an, you're like, a, like a dinosaur. In the mastermind <laughs> I was with yesterday, it's true. It was the top, um, top 20 agents in our, in our county. And I mentioned that there's 52,000 of us. Um, but that's all they were talking about is tracking internet leads, Facebook, Google, what's better, what's it cost? I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not even part of this conversation. There, but uh, so maybe, I need, maybe I need to be. The conversion rate, you know, the conversion rate on the internet leads is like 1%. What's your conversion lead when a geographic farm lead comes in? Well, you know, it's, it's tough for me to say because we, one of the things we do differently is, um, we do qualify a seller's motivation, but we really think it's important to get face to face with them. And so if you were just measuring our, our um, kind of success rate on signing at the first meeting, it's probably only 60%. But 
but who we end up doing business with is about 95% of the people we meet with. So I don't know how that, to your point. If 100 people call into your company for from geographic farming over a year, the sellers, how many of those do you end up listing? Without a doubt, if they're motivated, it's over 80%. Right, right. And internet leads is nowhere near that. I mean, it's not even close. So you're spending your time with quality, ready-to-go, motivated people where they're spending their time with tire kickers and stuff. I, I think it's just great to go after this market. You're getting come list me calls while they're go chasing after people who are talking to 20 other agents. Uh, it's, it's a great, brilliant strategy. Well, just to start wrapping up this geographic farm, what's your market share in there? Our market share in Surprise, which is our core focus, is 4%. And if you look at our entire farm, believe it or not, it's only 1%. And so there's tremendous opportunity in our market just because of the number of transactions to grow that exponentially. And so when we initially talked about what it is to go from, you know, our, from 20 to 30% growth year over year over year to flat, is we really had to look at where our business was coming from. And the farm has been absolutely consistent. And what that farm's allowed us to do in our um, Connections of Canada has allowed us to do is build a database of about 5,000 people. And when I say that, I mean, I mean good, good names, good phone numbers, good emails. Most of them we've met. And out of that group of 5,000, we've only had this year 17 pieces of business out of it. Now, there's models that you can expect as much as 10% business out of it. And so as a team, what we have not been doing is going back to our past clients, going back to our sphere of influence and asking for business. And we've also been somewhat in a transactional mindset, at least me personally, I don't want to put it on my team, in that we're trying to get to 300 transactions or trying to get to 200 transactions. And where we really want to focus on going forward is client appreciation events, delivering a world-class client client experience so that they want to tell our story. And so we're, we're really moving from a transaction-based mindset to really a customer experience mindset, knowing that that's going to carry us through the next levels. <laughs> that's awesome. So the, the seed of your solution for getting to that higher level has been sitting in your database the whole time, these past clients of sphere of influence, and now you're going to go in there and, and work it. And by the way, I think that's a common thing that we all do, especially geographic farmers for some reason, because we're always out there pushing the farm. I caution you not to let the farm go away because that's new business and then just develop this second source of business or development in this uh, past client sphere of influence. That's fantastic. Let's do this. Let's switch gears again real quick and let's talk about your team. Could you give us a quick outline of the tasks and responsibilities of the people on the team? Kind of give us an overview of the team. Yeah, sure. So it's myself who works in the capacity of team leader, if you will. And then my wife, Shannon Cunningham, who she's our lead listing specialist. And she's been in that role since 2011, 2012. And then we also have, who we've already talked about, an additional listing partner who has the same responsibility of Shannon, if you will, which is to go out and prospect for new listings. In addition to that, on our buyers team, we have four buyer specialists. And so they do just what it sounds, is they're constantly prospecting for new buyers for our listings. They're the ones that facilitate the open houses. And then on the same buyer's team, we have uh, two showing assistants. And so what a showing assistant does is allows the buyer specialist to have leverage in that 
when they're not available necessarily to be in the field showing homes to the clients that they're already working with, these showing specialists offer those services you know, to these buyer specialists. And then once, say, that client finds the house that they're interested in, then the buyer's agent kind of takes or buyer specialist takes that business back and starts working through the negotiation process. So that's been a great point of leverage for us. I mentioned the administrative support in the front end of this phone call, and we have a transaction manager that uh, everyone has access to. She also works in the capacity of our office manager. And then under her, we have our marketing manager, which manages the, um, the farm that we've discussed. And then we have our property manager, which is self-explanatory. And then our field manager who works in the field, running lockboxes, doing move-in inspections, move-out inspections. And then it's probably our, our newest piece, which is about four or five months in the making, is we have two inside sales associates. Actually, we call them outside sales associates. And what they're doing is telephone prospecting. We mentioned the, what it meant to enhance a farm. They're prospecting inside of the farm by somewhat cold calling, but just simply um, starting with a script of an introduction, which is very brief, and then just asking the simple question, have you spoken to anyone that may have mentioned they're thinking about buying or selling in the next six to 12 months? And that's been pretty successful for us so far. So we're going to stay the course on that. But that, that's the team as a whole. Yeah, this sits now. The other piece that we talked about, the farm really focusing on the client experience, which is a big initiative of ours through client events and, and other things, is that the last piece is just partnering with great agents with great potential, positive attitudes that really have a growth focus also, if that makes sense. And so those are kind of the three components that, um, that we truly believe will drive us to continue with our success and our growth. Todd, a lot of people listening, they're putting together teams, they have teams, and one of the biggest issues that always comes up, people have a curiosity about, is compensation for buyer agents, especially showing assistance now that that's starting to come into vogue. Uh, listing partner, could you give us just a quick brief overview of compensation for those folks? Yeah, sure. And I've had the same conversation on a national level. It's different on every team depending on where the leads come from. For us, our buyer specialist compensation agreement is 50-50, so they get 50% and 50% goes back to the team. Now, there's a caveat to that. If our inside sales associates set that appointment and ultimately closes escrow, then the buyer's specialist compensation will go down to 40%. Let me back up a little bit. Is our buyer's agent opt, they opt into those inside sales associate leads. So if they want them, great, 40% uh, commission. Our listing specialists, now they get a 25% commission split. And the reason for the lower split is they can carry much more inventory. A lot of those leads are coming from our farm. And in addition to that, the team absorbs the operating expenses, which is paying for the photographers, paying for the, um, the staging consultation, paying for the additional marketing that goes into that. And then finally, you mentioned the showing system is kind of you know, becoming a popular model. What a buyer specialist should be able to do in model by leveraging a showing assistant is add an additional four transactions to what they're already doing per month. And so for those four, the buyer specialist then splits their commission with the showing assistant. So it's 50 to the team, 25 to the buyer specialist, 25 to the showing assistant. Are you profitable? Wildly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we... um, we definitely managed to a P&L, and anybody that is listening that's considering a team or even an agent on their own, 
you know, I would live off of your income statement. And so we're able to, if, if we back our salaries out, we're able to operate at about a 45% net operating NOI. Well, Todd, what drives you? You know, I get asked that question all the time. And same thing with energy. I think it goes back to that initial story I told you about myself is that I just want to continue to grow. And what I've learned that through growth is that you hit what you believe to be a ceiling or a limitation and then you're exposed to something new. And so luckily for me, I've been exposed to agents, not only the top agents in our market, but the top agents in the United States. And so through building your team successfully, you become, you know, maybe the top in your market center and maybe that feels good. You go out and you find folks that are doing it on a much bigger level. And to me, that's kind of the game and that's exciting. And then you come back, you revamp your team and you try to build it to get to the next level. And for me, I know that we won, not necessarily because of transactions, not because of the gross volume or even the, the income and profit that we just talked about, but I want to bring people with me. That first team that I told you about that we had worked with, I'll never forget that the team leader had said at a time when I was you know, having financial struggles first starting out, he looked at me and he said, What's, you know the worst thing about being rich? And I thought, what? He said, is that I want to go on vacation, but nobody can come with me. That changed my world, and that I was going to start this team so that we could create team members that were not only telling us their goals, but help them achieve their goals and become as wildly successful as possible. So my role as team leader is to help our team members be as wildly successful as possible. So when I go back and look at the year, I look at how successful each team member was, and then that's how I know if we had hit our goals or not. Well, Todd, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? The first thing I would tell them to do is to really interview teams. And it's not to sell the team concept. It's because there's two things a new agent has to overcome. The first thing is credibility. The second thing is obscurity. And obscurity meaning that if someone wants to buy or sell a house, how do they know that you're able to help? So joining a team, you're overcoming obscurity because you can leverage them for those potential leads, or at least the models to go out and get new business. And when they say, how long have you been in the business? You know, you don't necessarily have to say them a brand new agent. You can say, I'm with AZ Performance Realty. We're the top team in the market. We've been in the business 11 years, right? The other piece is, is the models. I watch for lead lovers. I watch a lot of new agents come on to the brokerage as a whole, and they really struggle to find their niche. And most of the time, they don't make it. And so the value of a team is that there's established models and lead generating systems and, you know, maybe CRMs and, and things like that to lever in addition to be able to, you know, just shadow some top agents on that team. So the first thing I would recommend to an agent is to interview teams and see if you might be able to add enough value to them, vice versa, um, that it could be a great fit. Well, Todd, do you think that uh, top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? Oh, absolutely. Throughout my career and until yesterday at 11 o'clock, I will attend every mastermind and listen to every podcast that's available. Well, Todd, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? My parting thought, and it goes back to the last question you asked, which was about advice to a new agent, is that find a good mentor, whether it's someone in your office, someone in the industry, someone outside industry, just a good mentor that can keep you thinking bigger, especially when you become kind of content or maybe plateau that you can bounce ideas off of. Because so many times we get caught in the fire 
that we can't see the water. And that third party, that mentor has kind of already done it, can really give clarity to what we're doing in our business. And it'll just help propel folks through the next level rather than trying to figure out on our own, which so many of us try to do. Well, Todd, that's sage advice. Boredom initially gave you a slow career start, but your friend's expanded career options motivated you to reboot and approach school and life with more enthusiasm. Through hard work and dedication, you rose to the top of corporate America, only to be disappointed with the low compensation. You moved to a different state, took a flyer on real estate, sold five homes your first week, met your wife, joined forces, and started your own team. You started a geographic farm, had a slow start, stuck with it, grew it into a super profitable 22 to 1 ROI juggernaut. You turned an old school idea into a new world success system. With your thirst for knowledge and willingness to experiment, I see a bright future ahead. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 191 homes worth $33 million last year by prospecting. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.